I'd like to speak this morning primarily with regard to inspiration and ardency and some reflections on how that relates to the the form and the engagement with practice that we have the opportunity to 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 enter into here. A few days ago I was very fortunate, uh, both Catherine and I in fact, very fortunate to receive a visit from a, a teacher who we're both very fond of and I would say regard ourselves as very fortunate to also have as a friend Ajahn Sachito who is the uh, abbot of Chithurst Monastery in Sussex and he was passing through the area and gave us a call so uh, we were able to invite him for a cup of tea and I've known Ajahn Sachito for I guess about 20 years now. I first met him in in India when I was practicing in Budgaya and he was on a tudong, a, a pilgrimage through the Buddhist holy sites of that uh, part of the world and from the very first encounter I had with him and through many further such times, including the rather short but delightful uh, sort of afternoon tea we took together, or well, really it was early evening tea, um, with myself and Catherine and uh, two or three companions who were with him. There's a way in which I find myself very inspired by the dedication and commitment of his many years. I think it must be, gosh, it must be now... Um, 35, 40 years of monasticism and uh, the way that despite the the rigour and the austerity of that form he nonetheless seems to have a very human a very deeply felt sense of his his dharma and his experience and his presence as well in which there's a uh, it's not a distance or, or removed quality at all although there's very much the sense of a stillness and a, a sort of a a way in which the texture of his presence is, is very, uh, you could say, regular or smooth. But at the same time, he's really fully there, in a not just a sort of a very mindful, but a very heartful way. And I'm always touched by that. He's been, as I said, an inspiration to me. And in just reflecting on inspiration and, and coming to engage in a period of practice, as you are all doing, it's useful sometimes just to remember our connection to such people or things that touch our hearts in that way. And for me, equally coming to speak here, taking the opportunity to bow to the Buddha, to just remember what what a gift I have received and I think we have all received from the, the life and the teachings of this person, this human being. It was very interesting and in a way sad, but at the same time, instructive to hear from a student on the retreat I was teaching last week here that until one, I think it was myself, I can't remember myself or my co-teacher Leela, mentioning that the Buddha was a human being, this person didn't know that. They thought it was some kind of you know Asian god of some sort and uh, not realizing that these teachings actually come from human experience, from from. Not just, of course, the Buddha's life and experience, but the life and experience of, of a lineage of, of human beings, of women and men who've practiced them. And uh, just that sense of connection that we, by being here, have to the Buddha and to the lineage of practitioners, for me that's profoundly inspiring and supportive. And something I find really helpful to bring to mind when entering into, and equally when sustaining a period 
of practice. The other thing I wanted to mention, because it bears on the, uh, the subject of the morning, as I was returning rather full of joy and um, a sense of nourishment from the visiting with Ajahn Sachito back in our home, where Catherine and I live about eight miles away from here, um, I was returning to give the evening talk, having rather sort of uh, surreptitiously slipped out of the retreat. Not too surreptitiously, but anyway. Um, coming back and driving through the, the country lanes and the narrow little roads, and just a couple of hundred yards, maybe 300 yards from Gaia House, there's a little bridge when you're coming this way. And uh, just as I crossed the bridge and passed that, a large bird took off, and it was about 7 o'clock and in the dark, and it was an owl, and it just flew right into the path of the lights of the car and up onto the branch in front and stopped. And I stopped. Then I reversed back and dipped the lights and sat there. And this owl, this owl was looking, I don't know if it was looking at me because I was in the car, but I was certainly looking at it. And just the quality and presence of the being of this creature, these wide eyes, incredible stillness. And yet in that stillness, this equally potent sense of vitality of like, this owl was really there. And it was looking directly, unblinkingly. And for me, again, this is like, well, this is like icing on the cake. How good an evening can it get, you know, um, visiting with a beloved teacher and then here's this encounter with a, a creature of the wild. And the, and the sense of the, the transmissive quality from that creature equal in a maybe different way to, to being with, uh, with Ajahn Sachito. But in that, the sense of the, the seeing, the looking, the, the unblinking, unwavering attention. And of course, one, if one was a small furry creature scurrying through the woods, it wouldn't feel quite so benevolent necessarily to be seen by those eyes. And yet for myself, relatively safe in the, you know, in the, the car, it was just pure delight. And so that quality, I think, is one that we can, wherever and however we connect with it, usefully remember and bring into the way we orient ourselves towards what we're doing here, what we're engaging with here. Because there's, a, I guess, two or three questions that I feel really important, perhaps essential, as we enter into a retreat as we enter into a period of practice, and equally as we enter into one period of sitting or walking or standing meditation, equally perhaps as we enter into one moment just as it is, this quality of knowing, having some remembering or reference to what it is that brings us to engage and what it is that serves or how it is is most useful for us to engage with our practice, with what's arising, with what our experience is. And this that we touched upon a little last night that may move us, bring us to engage here. That sense of why we practice, what it is in our hearts and in our lives that speaks to us, that calls us to, to explore, to dive deeply into the very heart of our life, into the very heart of each moment to discover what may be the greatest possibility, the, the highest potentiality of a human being, of heart and mind. And 
sensing in that what's really most important for us? What's really the priority? What is it that has inspired you to come here? And what does that say about what you want to give yourself to in this time? The very famous and often quoted words of the Buddha as he reflected before he entered into his own, in a way, period of focused spiritual practice. It wasn't a formal retreat per se, but when he chose to leave his home, the the palace and his life behind, just as all of you have left your conventional lives or more familiar lives behind to come and enter here, this retreat. His reflection was, having encountered the the somewhat harsher realities of life, of seeing ageing, sickness, death in his world, he, he contemplated, he asked himself, why should I, who am subject to birth, ageing, sickness and death, Why should I pursue and seek after those things which are also subject to birth, ageing, sickness and death? Would it not make more sense that myself being subject to birth, ageing, sickness and death, I should seek that which is not subject to birth, to ageing, to sickness and death? To seek, as he termed it, Nibbāna, the end of suffering, the release from bondage, the liberation of the heart. Would it not make sense to seek this, to give myself wholeheartedly to this? And this inspiration, this movement of understanding in the Buddha triggered a a process of events culminating through his years of practice in awakening in liberation and wisdom and compassion flowing through his life unstoppably and through and from his life into the lives of hundreds and thousands, including ourselves. And just sometimes just remembering that. What is it that we deeply seek? What is it that we most long for? And yet, having made space for that, allowing that sense of movement in the very core of our being. And we might feel it in the gut, in the heart, in the very physicality of our life. Or it may just be more of a sense of possibility, a sense of calling that we feel more as a brightening or a quickening in the mind. A sense of openness and interest to engage in a new way, in a fulsome way, in a wholesome way. That just as that comes, that sense of aspiration or inspiration there also needs to be a quality of, of wisdom in how we engage with that. And the fundamental orientation, really, of abandoning materialism, abandoning the way in which we start to look for something to get, to have, to keep, to own, and ultimately to define ourselves by. Materialism on the surface level of, is much about getting things and having things, possessions, At a deeper level, it's more to do with the grasping for experience, seeking to wish to have wonderful meditative experiences or very spiritually cosmic experiences or whatever they might be that we sometimes find ourselves grasping for in the spiritual realms, having to a significant degree, I imagine, for all of you to be here at all, letting go of the material grasping. And yet that grasping for experiences can be strong. And the way that we then take experiences that arise and try and use them to establish a sense of who we are, the process of becoming the ultimate materialism 
is trying to become someone. Through meditative practice, equally, as through any other activity. Becoming is where we're trying to gain a certain experience that can reflect to us an identity or a, an image of ourself that we wish for. The wise one, the spiritual one, the compassionate one, the enlightened one. Oh gosh, that looks good, doesn't it? Well, it sounds good anyway. Of course, this happens in our minds. But we can see that, we can know that. We don't have to subscribe to and give energy to that grasping, that moving. So to practice with a mind that's not seeking to gain something here, that's not trying to get something, and yet has this quality of, of, of ardency, of real wholeheartedness and the, the sort of that really full, passionate engagement. When we talk about cooling of the passions, we're talking about cooling the passions that lead to contraction, grasping and resistance. But the ardor of the heart, I love that word, the sense of ardor, ardency, it's something beautiful about it. Sort of makes you think of a flame, or it makes you want to sort of just do something like this, which I don't know quite why, but it's sort of expressive for me. It's that uprightness, and yet there's a certain softness in it as well. This is not a Buddhist murder, it's just mine, but it's just like, yeah. Sounds like a flame is upright, but it's also fluid. It's not trying to grab hold of anything, it just burns. And so as we cultivate and develop the wholesome, the beneficial, the beautiful qualities of heart and mind, cultivating calm and stillness of heart, cultivating loving-kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, cultivating wisdom, insight, understanding, all of these things, yes, even as we're seeking for discovery, seeking to go beyond the limits of what we may have already known and realized, seeking the, the deepening of realization, of awakening, even as we orient towards, as we turn towards, as we open ourselves to all of this, to do so with a non-gaining mind, with a mind that isn't seeking to get something from this. Without a gaining mind, we're really in a space of openness, that allows us to receive just what it is that our life, that these teachings, this dharma has to offer, and just what this moment is revealing, which is always where our practice finds its cutting edge, its deepening, its opening, is in the receiving fully the truth of what is, even as it transforms, even as it opens, nonetheless just receiving. And the Buddha once observed in this context, this is from a Mahayana Sutra, so it may or may not be that he said it exactly like this, but it's certainly a teaching ascribed to him by many of the schools. He said, I gained absolutely nothing from complete, full, unexcelled enlightenment. That is why it is complete, full, unexcelled enlightenment. So there's a, almost a paradox here, isn't there? Can we give ourselves fully? Can we really engage with a sense of possibility? A sense of the, the potency of this form, 
these teachings and this life, this aliveness we have to engage with, the potency of that, and yet without a sense of this a particular gaining that I'm here for. To let the practice take us into the immediacy of the here and now. All practice, all true practice is happening in this place, in this moment of meeting. Whatever the form, whatever the tools, whatever the primary orientation of your practice may be, towards stillness, towards insight, towards heart qualities of the Brahma-viharas that I mentioned already, or simply towards the unfolding of things as they are, and just more simply, rather than sometimes we might choose to say, yeah, I want to emphasize this for a period of time. Maybe it's a few days, maybe it's a few years, or maybe it's just this retreat. We might want to emphasize a particular element of the practice. And you're very welcome if that's something you're reflecting on and interested in, to, to, to bring that question or that intention to, to meet with one of, one of us teachers to reflect on how you might best be able to do that. But it's not necessary to have chosen and made such a choice. It may simply be that one says, yes, I'm going to be here as fully and as openly as I'm able to. And let me see what life, what the Dharma offers, what presents in the immediacy. And so that sense of immediacy, that sense of just this, just now, just here, is always the foundation of what we're doing, that sense of engaging. And and in that, we can perhaps usefully remember, reflect on the preciousness of the opportunity to do so. We don't know how much time we'll have to practice. It may well be, and I certainly hope that for all of us, the full duration of our retreat will be here for us. But we don't know that. It's not for sure. Things happen in the world. Things happen in bodies, two bodies. And so, of course, we have a general and appropriate sense of, yeah, this is my retreat and this is my life this many weeks or weeks of retreat, this many years or decades of life, sure. And yet, just this is what we're sure of. Just now is what we're guaranteed. And only that. So when we maybe turn towards the breathing, towards the sense of immediacy, of being present as a way of establishing ourselves here, turning towards the body in the sense of its physical presence and the breath that flows within it, that is an anchor, that is a support for remembering the hereness, the nowness, the immediacy, the vitality and the vulnerability of this existence. That it's here, that it's now, that it is alive and that it isn't alive forever. All that together. Allowing that to rest in the heart, in the, in the consciousness, in the being. As we practice, as we begin the gentle and yet ardent wholehearted engagement gentle in the sense of allowing things to be as they are ardent and wholehearted in the sense of really bringing yourself to meet things as they are really bringing yourself here again and again and again and again 
without getting too involved at all in measuring how many times or how long or how deep or how far you got lost or how long or how deep or how far you were present. Just as fully, as deeply, as openly as you can be, entering into this again and again, entering into this, just this, and yet this, this life, this moment, this heart, mind, body, breath that's happening, that's happening. And so we will speak over the coming days about the the basic framework of meditation practice as the Buddha outlined it in the uh, Satipatthana Sutta, the teachings on mindfulness that he gave in many different ways and forms. And I'd like to just share a little bit of that. Again, probably for most of you as a simple reminder, but because there's something for me that's inspiring in hearing these words, translations, although they are, these words that were spoken 2,600 years ago as a, as a beacon of light and as a, not just an inspiration, but as a very workable framework for liberation, for freedom, for wisdom and compassion to flower in the human heart. And the Buddha says, friends, or bhikkhus he says, but these were his friends. Friends, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. What are these four? Here, friends, A practitioner abides contemplating the body as body, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. He or she abides contemplating feelings as feelings, mind as mind, mind objects as mind objects. Ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. He goes on to speak in some considerable detail about each of these. But just the basic framework, this is a direct path to freedom. To really hear those words. This is a direct path to freedom. And inviting us, inviting us to, to abide contemplating the body as body. Equally the other aspects of our experience, but just beginning with body, this physical sense of existence that we, it seems, inhabit, this breath that flows through the body that's very much a part of what it is. This is where the Buddha invited us to begin, the exploration, the journey of connection and discovery. This is where he invited us to engage. And he says... Contemplating, ardent, fully aware and mindful. Ardent, that sense of a brightness, a passion, like it's our heart's got to be engaged in this. Sometimes we get this image of when we hear then sort of fully aware and mindful, we think, oh, mindfulness, it's that sort of cool, calm, very sort of 
unmoved, detached image that sometimes is reflected in the, the way people talk about or express meditation practice. And yet for me, it seems clear in this, and certainly from my own experience and contact with those people who I've learnt the most from, that there's a real sense of heart in this, a real sense of something profoundly human and that yet moves from within our humanness towards that which is not limited or circumscribed by just the ordinary human experience. That ardency, that sense of, yeah, I'm really here for this. Because there's nothing else that's really this important that touches or calls to my heart this deeply. Ardent, fully aware. So the Buddha spoke about this quality of full awareness, of of kind of knowing what's going on. It's not sort of like a half awareness or a fragmented awareness or a constrained awareness. We're not, when we focus on the breath or when we focus on a particular practice or quality that we might be developing, being encouraged to restrain in any divisive or restrictive or rejecting way anything from our experience. There's, of course, the value of focusing, of simplicity, of orienting towards a particular aspect of experience such as the breath or the body, to settle and stabilize the mind or as an object of the development of insight, of inquiry and exploration and understanding. And yet, having an attitude that we're we're not making any experience somehow outside of what is legitimate and appropriate, fully aware, aware of life in its fullness, while we might nonetheless focus, refine and attend in a particular way, using the tools that we've learned and are deepening in our practice. Fully aware and mindful. Just this bare noticing, this capacity to be conscious of the simple, immediate fact of whatever life is presenting. Simple non judgmental, non demanding, non coercive, non analytical presence that we call mindfulness. That's just simple. Sometimes it's called bare attention. But bare doesn't mean, again, somehow that we have to strip it bare in the sense of everything's gone. I have a friend in America who has a small stuffed teddy and he calls it bare attention. It's quite cute, isn't it? And it's a very interesting juxtaposing of that term, bear attention, with his little teddy bear, because it's actually got quite a soft feeling to it. But if you look at it, it's pretty still. It doesn't move. I haven't seen it ever have a strong reaction to anything. So some composure there. And yet, with a certain, again, a sense of heart, a sort of a warmth and a, a kindliness in it. And so again there, when we talk about mindfulness... For me, mindfulness includes an element of heartfulness, a sense of the presence of our caring in the quality of our attention. Because without that caring, to some extent, we're slightly holding back. It's not like we have to be kind of moving forward or towards our experience, but to be fully mindful, it needs for us to not in any way be held back. And without the presence of the heart, that sense of caring, of openness, 
It's very hard. In fact, it's impossible, I would suggest, to be fully there. Because it needs all of us to be fully there. Not just the bright sort of light, but up at the top. It needs equally the sense in here that, not just meaning the physical heart, but we could say that centre of the, the being that registers, resonates, is touched by, affected by life. And so we talk about the heart-mind, or I talk about the heart-mind. Chitta, that which is affected and responds, that's what we're bringing into relationship with our life more consciously, more fully, more openly. And so there's this abiding, ardent, fully aware, mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. Covetousness, the sense of wanting something from the world, wanting it to give me something, to offer me something particular that I haven't got or received already from it. And putting away grief for the world, that sense of all the ways we might wish that it had been other than as it was. Of course, it's natural, it's understandable. We would feel grief for the losses, the disappointments, the failures and the frustrations that in life we can encounter. Of course, that's natural, that's part of the life of the heart. It has its place. And putting it away doesn't mean that somehow we're not supposed to be having those experiences of either being drawn towards things we find attractive, interesting, desirable, whether material or spiritual in their essential flavor. Equally, that we're not somehow supposed to be experiencing sorrow or grief or loss because we may be finding at times this is what touches us but that we do so with an attitude with an understanding that we're not here to somehow try and make things be other than as they are that we're not here to somehow get over however it was in our life, in a sense of fixing it or resolving it, but that we can simply include what has been here in our life in the present. But without giving that history of what was, or the future in terms of what might be, without giving that the authority to determine whether we will be happy or find satisfaction in life or not, not giving it that authority, not saying that this is the ultimate arbiter of peace, of happiness, of freedom. Because to do so is to bind ourselves to the world of things that we cannot control, that are born and die, and would be to be seeking for our happiness, our freedom, and that which ultimately can't offer it to us. This is like fundamental foundation of, of understanding and, and Dharma teaching. And so putting away covetousness and grief for the world <clears throat> is really about putting away the idea that if things could have been other than as they were or different than they might turn out to be, then somehow that would be the resolution of my life. No. The resolution of our life is the willingness to enter into it, ardent, fully aware, mindful, putting away the idea that anything other than this as it is is what is needed for our freedom, for our awakening.
So to look for the resolution to suffering, to look for the foundations of freedom in our own heart, mind, body experience, to turn towards this that is here, that is now, and that is available, that we can use, that's offered to us for this purpose, it seems, ultimately above all others, to facilitate and to serve the awakening not just of our own life, but of all the lives our lives touch and all the life that our life is touched by. And so just noticing perhaps where you are right now. Maybe locating your sense physically of being here. If in the listening you've lost some degree of contact with that. Or just the remembering of where you are and the beginning or the continuing of your retreat as you are just now. Sensing perhaps what it's like to bring that quality of ardency, a kind of wholehearted or heartfelt engagement with awareness, mindfulness, simple presence. Letting the body be still while the breath moves. Equally allowing the heart to move as the attention is invited to steady, to not hold back from this moment, from this breath, from this that is right now, as an offering to yourself, as an offering to this life and to all that live. So let's sit together quietly for a few minutes together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.